Hello everybody, I'm Matt Micucci and you are listening to the Jazzy's Podcast. Hello everybody, Jazz is online editor Matt Mikucci here, welcoming you to a new episode of our podcast series of conversations with some of the most amazing artists on the jazz and creative music scene today, a series that we simply like to call The Jazz is Podcast. And it's brought to you in conjunction with Jazz is Vinyl Club, a series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz is editors, and that is an absolute must for lovers of jazz and vinyl alike. Our guest today is Grammy-winning keyboardist, composer and bandleader Jeff Lorber, who recently released The Drop, the latest album with his Jeff Lorber fusion group. Lorber's journey as a musician is marked by an unwavering passion, technical virtuosity, innovative spirit and genuine dedication and has served as a wellspring of inspiration for countless artists over a span of more than five decades. The Drop not only features Lorber's original compositions but also assembles a stellar ensemble of musicians and on this podcast we also delve into his formative years, explore the fascinating evolution of the Jeff Lorber Fusion project and much more. So fire up an audio teeny and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Jazzy's Podcast. Hi Jeff, welcome to the Jazzy's Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's a real pleasure to have you. And, uh, you know, w- the way that we like to start our podcast conversations here at the Jazz's Podcast is I like to kind of break the ice by asking the artists I speak with to share a memory with me from early childhood or early life of when they distinctly remember awakening to the beauty and power of music. And maybe, you know, when you think back to it, you realize maybe that's when I started thinking I would love to become a musician when I grow up. Uh, do you have one such memory that you could share with us? Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty immediate because my mom was a piano player and she pl- practiced all the time. Well, I don't, know if it, I don't know if you'd call it practicing. I think she just played for her own enjoyment. And uh, especially when I was going to sleep, she'd be playing uh, pieces she, she liked Debussy and, uh, you know, sort of romantic music. You know, she actually went to music school. Music school. Uh, women back in those days didn't, you know, they didn't really have careers as much as they do now, unfortunately. So I don't think she ever really pursued it. But um, I just love to hear her play. And I had two sisters, older sisters, that were taking lessons too. So they were having a lot of fun, you know, playing piano. There was just lots of music around. There was... Um, a record player that we, you know grew up in the 50s so um there was like broadway play music and uh and i was one of those people that um that saw the beatles on ed sullivan show you know but it didn't uh you know a lot of people will say that when they saw the beatles on ed sullivan it's like oh that's what i want to do but um for me when that the moment that i it was more like that's what i want to do is when i heard herbie hancock's album Fat Albert Rotunda. That was sort of his first funky album that he made uh, for Warner Brothers. And uh, when, when I heard that, it was, well, I always loved music. How old would you have been when you heard that album? Oh, well, that was quite a few years later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think I think that was, you know, junior, senior in, in high school, something like that. I think. Interesting. So there was always music in the house. Uh, and, and I read that yeah. you, you actually started playing you know learning to play the piano from an early age four years old uh, thereabouts 
but yeah. you didn't actually maybe make up your mind to become a or to do it, you know, professionally until way later then. You know, like a lot of people, when you're in high school, you don't really know what you're going to do with your life. And uh, a lot of my friends just went off to college and they took sort of a liberal arts kind of college degree thing. And um, I just really loved music and I was playing in bands and I, I had a great passion for it. And so I decided to go to music school. You know, I ended up going to Berkeley, which was a pretty good, pretty lucky and good, good choice, it turned out. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I just and, 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 the, and the, the real motivation behind that wasn't exactly that I was so sure that I wanted to be a professional musician. It's just this is something I really love. I'd like to give it a try, see what happens. And so that's what that's what I did. And it worked out in the end. Uh, in fact, we're going to be talking <laughs> yeah, about so. your new album uh, in a little while to drop, but maybe bringing it into the conversation, you know, because seeing as we're talking sure. about your formative years, you, I did read in a press release about the album, you know, a statement where you shared that you believe that it's easy to write music, but it's hard to write great music. So uh, taking that as a starting point, I would love to ask you about you and composition. I mean, did you start early in life to compose music? Did you always have a natural incl inclination towards it? Or is it something that you maybe discovered later on as you uh, learned to play? I think I, I think I did. You know, it's I know it's pretty weird for a young kid to think about like, yeah, I want to be a songwriter. I want to be a composer because most people don't even know what that means, you know, when you're young. But um, I think like one thing that really inspired me, first of all, I had a couple of cousins who were really into jazz. Uh, I, have, I had a first cousin named Stuart who played drums and um, he lived in uh, West Philly at the time like that John Coltrane and a lot of great music was, you know, John Coltrane lived in Philadelphia and he played all the time around town and uh, the Heath brothers and McCoy Tyner and, Sun Ra used to play a lot around town when I was growing up. But, you know, my, my cousin was always taking off from family um, events to go hear John Coltrane play at, at a club nearby. So I, you know, remember hearing, hearing about John Coltrane. I didn't really know that much about him, you know, yet, of course. But I, I, I was, uh, he had a big collection of uh, Blue Note albums and I would go over there. And actually I had other cousins too that were also what was popular at the time was folk music. And I probably had more cousins that were into folk music. So the, the cousins, when the family would get together, the cousins with the guitars and the folk music, they would go off somewhere and I would hang out with um, my cousin, the drummer, my cousin, Stuart, the drummer who had, he had a thing hooked up where he could play drums in the basement and play records. There was a record player in the living room, but he had it wired so he could play along with records in, um, in the basement. And of course, every kid loves to, try to play drums. So he would let me play the drums. So that was a big inspiration. And then another, uh, another cousin of mine, um, a guy named Ernie Pintoff, who was actually a filmmaker, a director and, um, uh, and a trumpet player. And he actually showed me my first blues on the piano, which was um, Dizzy Gillespie's Burke's works. And it was a real basic kind of way to play, but um, I still, can play it. I you know, it was really great. Uh, and he, he gave me three albums, which were um, My Fair Lady by Andre Previn, Thelonious Monk, Monk's Dream, and Ballads and Blues by McCoy Tyner. So that was like pretty weird collection of records. Yeah. I mean, to begin with, the McCoy Tyner record was way too serious and too, you know, 
I couldn't really get into that, but I loved the, the Thelonious Monk record. I used to play it over and over and over again and just couldn't get enough of it. And I still can't get enough of it. I think it's just such a great record. I mean, Thelonious Monk's just such a genius, and that record in particular has a whole bunch of incredible uh, compositions on it, Baya and Boulevard Blues and, and uh, Monk Stream, the title track, and... Uh, and for a kid, it's just, it's great because the stuff's simple. You can sort of hear the melodies. And, and the, and the uh, My Fair Lady record was nice too. I mean, you know, I didn't quite take to that as much, but I really enjoyed it. I love the songs. And, and uh, Andre Previn's trio was, was, was terrific. And so I listened to that one. Um, yeah, but it's, a, it's amazing that you remember distinctly the albums, uh, those albums that seem to have made you know, had such a huge impact on you. So, so basically when you, when you think of like the origins of your composition, those influences kind of uh, come to mind. Yeah. And then another thing is during that era, there were a lot of really cool theme songs, especially of detective shows on TV. And that really, you know, when I heard that stuff, I wanted to learn how to play those melodies, like the Henry Mancini melodies. So that was actually a big influence too. And I would take, that was really how I started kind of writing was by learning some of this stuff and then just sort of making variations on it and making different, you know, kind of playing it different ways. And that's, that's like the first step, you know, you have to kind of copy stuff at first and then eventually you, you know, you can learn how to manipulate the, 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 ele the musical elements and, and make new things out of it. If I even look at my own, um, you know, first three albums, um, the first album in particular and the second one also was a little bit derivative. There were songs that sounded like, you know, there were some songs that sounded like Chicory and there were some songs that sounded like Herbie Hancock. But by the time you got to the third album, all of a sudden, you know, my own voice started to emerge and, um, and that, and that, that made a big difference. So, but it, it takes a while to get to, for that to happen, I guess. Right. Because as we are talking about, uh, you know, influences from the past, one of the things that is known about your music is also there's a forward thinking element to it. Also, when it comes to the different sounds and maybe, you know, you were always kind of open to the new things, you know, the, uh, the new sounds, the electronics and, uh, maybe even now, I don't know, uh, uh, you, you know, experimented with digital techniques in the, in the realm of, production too so that component Absolutely. would you say that is equally important for you when you when you you know when you make your own music absolutely i mean well one thing that you know um you know so when i was um getting started with my recording career there were already like some incredible stuff out there that was like weather report and mom vision orchestra and chikoria returned forever and the music, you know, and just the R&B music, the, you know, um, the average white band and Earth, Wind and & Fire and all the great records that were coming out of um, uh, fantasy records, in, you know, like the Joe Henderson albums and um, all the stuff they were doing, Flora and Aerto. And uh, there was just tons of exciting music. I, I would say Weather Report in particular was a huge influence and the stuff Herbie was doing, stuff Chick was doing. And all of those guys were exper experimenting with synthesizers. And they were coming up with new sounds and they were coming up with new production techniques using, you know, uh, the palette of, of like more tracks on, on the recording machines, you know, as, as it went from uh, 8 to 16 to 24. And uh, it gave, gave you so much freedom with overdubbing. And so that's what I was listening to. And that's what I was inspired by. And um, that, you know, that was that's sort of where the bar was. The bar was pretty high. 
you know, if those are your heroes and you want to, and you want to emulate that. So, um, yeah, it was very exciting, very fun to be inspired by that music and to learn it. Cause I, one thing that I, that I was very fortunate about, I was living in Portland, Oregon when I started my group and there was a club there called the helm and they would hire people for weeks at a time and let you practice there during the day. And we would work, you know, like six nights a week, six, seven nights a week. And, um, so we would, we would learn our own original music and also weather report tunes and stuff that was coming out of CTI. That was another big influence, you know, the records uh, that those guys were making. The Crusaders, that's another huge influence too. You know, uh, so, so we, we not only got to work on original music, but we also played a lot of cover tunes. We would play like Elegant People by, by uh, Weather Report, or we'd play Love Castle by Chick Corea, or we played different tunes by um, Herbie, of course. track you are hearing is from The Drop, the latest album by Jeff Lorber Fusion, available now on Shanachi Entertainment. We'll resume our conversation with Jeff Lorber in a moment, but first I wanted to remind you that if you love jazz and vinyl, you should check out Jazz's Vinyl Club, a new series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz's editors and featuring some of the most exciting jazz artists from yesterday and today that we cover in the print version of Jazz's, jazzes.com and these Jazz's podcasts. Go to jazz's.com and click on Join Vinyl Club. And now, back to our conversation with Jeff Lorber. Thinking about uh, also the Jeff Lorber Fusion group, uh, you know, this, of course, this new album that's, uh, that's come out, uh, The Drop. Uh, is with this mm-hmm. with this particular group, and it's a group that goes back. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of it it, it has a, a a huge history. So, if you were to kind of trace the evolution of this particular band, uh, does it coincide with maybe your changing in, influences, interests, and has its quote unquote mission statement changed over the year? How has it evolved uh, in your opinion over the years? Well, it's I mean. Um, my career has a lot of has had a lot of ups and downs and a lot of different things have happened. I went through a period for a number of years where I was sort of stopped making albums, Jeff Lorber albums, and I focused on being kind of a, um, a ranger uh, keyboard player for hire in the L.A. Uh, studio scene, which which was which was a lot of fun and, and kind of very educational in many ways. And I, and I even spent about three or four years doing not, doing a lot of re- dance remixes which a lot of people don't know, but um, I really got into that music and uh, the little team that we had together uh, doing dance remixes was, was pretty successful. We got to work on a lot of, a lot of really cool records, but um, yeah. So the new incarnation of, so after all that, I wanted to get back to doing, you know, having my own outlet for my own creative music. And, um, and, and, and the thing that's similar in a way to the old Jeff Lorber Fusion and the new Jeff Lorber Fusion, the old Jeff Lorber Fusion, we had like a pretty solid band that was together for a number of years. And we were lucky to have the support of Arista Records. We made six albums for them. And the, and the band was Danny Wilson, Dennis Bradford, Kenny Gorlick, and uh, myself. And we toured a lot. We toured a ton. 
And, you know, it wasn't the world's like greatest session players, but we had a chemistry and there's something about those records that, that really, you know, they stand the test of time and they sound pretty good. Like now I'm working with world-class talented musicians all the time in Los Angeles. Like it's no big deal. You know, they're all my friends and uh, that's, that's who I play with. But I think there's something special about having a core uh, group of people that, that you work with. And that you have kind of that 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 sort of um, chemistry with, and so the core group that I have now is basically Gary Novak, who's plays drums. He's not really credited that much all the time because he does a lot of other stuff, and he's not available for a lot of our live gigs. But as far as making records, he's he's been playing drums on like you know the last I don't know five or six albums we've made, and um, Jimmy Haslip, who's been co-producing, you know I don't know the last six, seven albums at least, it seems like. And uh, he's very involved in, um, you know, just kind of like the overview of, of the record, trying to figure out where we're going stylistically and trying to, you know, not just make a bunch of songs and stick it out there, but, but to really have a concept of, of what, we're, what we're after. Like each record is sort of a stylistic statement that, that's where each one is a little bit different. We, we want to give the, the people a reason to want to listen to it or want to want to buy it. And, you know, if they've already listened to a bunch of my music, why should I buy this one? You know, you have to sort of answer that question. And um, so I'm lucky to have uh, that sort of core group. And then in addition to that, there's uh, Dave Mann, who's a fantastic corner ranger that's quite involved. You know, I used uh, Michael Thompson for quite a long time as, as a, um, for a lot of guitar overdubs lately I, on this record, I, I kind of changed things up and I used um, Mike Lettieri from Snarky Puppy, who was just fantastic in terms of just really taking the music to another place. And he's a terrific uh, rhythm guitarist and uh, soloist. So that was a big um, change. And also he contributed, you know, his, his voice on the record contributes a lot. And a guy named um, our sax player, um, Randall Clark, uh, and uh, I've been working with him on his records, which was a lot of fun. And we've we've made about three records together already. And um, and I really liked his playing, so I invited him to come aboard, and he played beautifully on. Um, on you know, he's he's on most of the record, so that's that's another new voice for the record too. An excellent lineup, but you did mention artistic statement, and that you want to kind of always have, you know, for each album to have their their own concept and identity. So if you were to describe the concept and identity of the drop, how would you do that? Well, well, if, if you look at the big picture, I think if you go back to even my first few records, you know, my style of music is essentially um, kind of funky grooves with, you know, some other kinds of grooves too, you know, and, um, but basically R&B, kind of an R&B approach to the rhythm section. And, um, and then harmonically and melodically, and um, especially when it comes to soloing, there's definitely a bebop influence. But um, the, the melodies are also, I, w- I want them to be sort of um, kind of singable or, you know, recognizable and not, not to make them too crazy. And um, so, so, yeah, so I think that the, the, some, of the, some of the interesting uh, stuff about this album is there's a lot of, um, there's a certain there's certain kinds of chord progressions that are based around like four chord patterns that are not necessarily you know what you hear every day and it's it's a little bit more complicated from that standpoint than other stuff that I've done that, that tend to be 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I mentioned CTI. I'm very influenced by that, the kind of 70s, you know, jazz where there's like a head and then everybody takes a solo. I mean, that's what we do when we play live a lot. But by the same token, I think you need more than that. And um, and so the, the slightly more, you know, I think this record has like a like a little bit more um, sophisticated approach to harmony and the way the songs are, are put together. Um, they're a little bit more dense in terms of the production and the rhythmic, you know, arrangement that, that Gary added. Um, and, and definitely uh, stuff that um, the the axis between the, the keyboards that I put down and the rhythm guitars that that, uh, that Mark put on and and the solo stuff that he put on I don't know if, I, don't, I don't know if, I don't think that really explains it too uh, specifically but uh, that's kind of the way I look at it I guess yeah sure and I think basically I think there I think there's some I'm, I'm really excited about this record um, in terms of playing it live we're on we're on a tour right now and we haven't learned <laughs> We haven't learned any of the music from the album because we just haven't had a chance. We were just like thrown out on the road. We we haven't had a day off. Today was like our first day off. It's not really a day off because we have to play in a couple hours, but we didn't have to fly anywhere and we didn't have to drive anywhere. Yeah. So well, you're um, in London it right was now. Like, so how's the tour been so yeah. far? Well, it was a beautiful day today. I got a chance to walk around the city and... Um, we're in, um, I, I haven't played in, in uh, I played at the Pizza Express before, but we're in Holborn, which I, which I guess is, uh, I don't know my way around London that much, but it seems like a cool part of town. It's not that far from Soho, which is where we usually play. Yeah, it's a very central part um, of uh, London. But we've been to, um, we've, we've been all over uh, Italy, which was really kind of interesting. And um, and we played in, uh, in, in Vienna. We're about to go to Mallorca tomorrow. Uh and we've did, done some gigs in Germany. We're doing some more. We're going to Cologne uh, the day after Mallorca and then uh, Holland. And then, yeah, we're, we're sort of wrapping up the third week of this tour. So get to go back to the United States in about a week. So I'm looking forward to that. And more dates to come. Yeah. So back, back to the album, I did want to, you know, bring up the fact that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is your 30th album as a, as a leader. That's what, um, you know, Monifa, who wrote the bio, I'm not sure if that's exactly correct. It's kind of hard to figure it out because there's, you know, there's been a few um, of those sort of compilation records. And I think it's probably close, though. If it's not, if it's not right, it's close. (laughs) So I didn't, uh, I was trying to figure it out and I sort of got, I sort of lost, you know, I couldn't quite be positive that it was 30, but it's probably pretty close to that. It's pretty close. Pretty close. <laughs> but yeah, I'm glad, you know, I, I love making music. I love uh, touring and, and uh, you know, working in the studio. And so, I mean, it's a great way to make a living and uh, I enjoy it. And I'm just glad I get to do what I love doing. Oh, that's wonderful. And I did want to kind of use that factoid, I guess, as a starting, uh, as, as a way to kind of bring up this thing that I've kind of been reflecting on recently because, you know, in the digital age of streaming media platforms, for me, albums continue to be incredibly important and powerful. I wondered whether you, as an artist, as a recording artist, have noticed a difference in which, you know, albums are produced or even released out into the world and whether they have gained any new significance, uh, their importance has changed in any way. How do you feel about the album? Well, um, you know, the, the world is constantly changing and it's changing really fast and radically in a million different ways, as we all know. And um, all I can say is I'm thrilled that I get to keep doing it. There, there still are record companies 
that will uh, give you a budget to make records. And uh, even though that budget might be pretty small compared to what it used to be and there and the amount of marketing and promotion that they do might be pretty small compared to what it used to be. But it's really appreciated on my my end of things. I mean, there's no reason why you have to really make an album because, um, you know, you could put out singles. I mean, you could do whatever you want. It's like it's the brand new world. You can kind of invent how, how you want to. Uh, do things, you know, my, my friend Randall is putting out EPs because he decided that the, the album thing didn't really work, but he, he thinks putting out like five or six song EPs is a better way to go because, you know, I, th I think he feels like he has songs that are getting missed by people, like, and then by do it on EPs, you can sort of have a chance to put more things out as singles and then people get to hear more, which I certainly... No, I appreciate that. But I'm just really glad that, um, like I said, that there's still a music business, even though it's completely different than the one where um, that we had in the 80s when that was sort of the heyday of the record business, I guess, with like so many different record companies and every major label had a jazz division. And, uh, you know, things are quite different now. Um, but uh, yeah, just so based on the fact that there still exists an infrastructure for that sort of supporting the, the production of albums. I'm really happy to be part of that. And, uh, and, and I think um, what happens is if you, if you, if you sit down and you, and you write, I mean, making an album is a big, it's, it's a big responsibility and it's a big thing to take on. You know, there's a lot to do. It's kind of like building a house or something. Cause you, you know, you have to write it and you have to, you have to bring all these people in and to help you out and you mix it. And it's, it goes through so many stages, it's sort of like when you build a house, you, you know, you got the plans and you laid out down the foundation and then eventually you're putting in the windows and the doors and the light, the light sockets and, you know, whatever else. So that it's kind of like the same thing. Um, but um, what happens is in, in the process of doing like maybe 10 songs, then you find that are, there are a few that really stand out in certain ways. And uh, so I think that's the good part of it, of doing albums is that, in the process of doing all 10 songs, then you find like, you know, a couple of them just really are exceptional and take off. And so it helps you, you kind of come up with that excellence, you know, that, um, that you want to have uh, that's part of the record. Uh, excellent. Excellent. Well, one other thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, was, you know, something that I know about you is, uh, you're also a spokesman for the PKD foundation, uh, having endured your own battle with po uh, polycystic uh, kidney disease. And I just wondered whether you could share with us, uh, your story and experience and the impact that you hope to have by, by being a spokesperson and sharing yeah. your story. Well, I mean, it's interesting because this year, my friend, um, uh, David Benoit, who's another keyboard player, he had the same operation that I had. He had a kidney transplant and I had a chance to really sort of help him out and let him know like, hey, this is what it's all about. And this is what <laughs> this is what you're going to go through. Unfortunately, in my family, uh, for those people that don't know, uh, polycystic kidney disease is a genetic disease, like many other uh, diseases or genetic diseases. And uh, it, what happens is the the cells of your kidneys, instead of being normal cells, they get some wrong programming and they sort of turn into cysts and then eventually they grow. And if they grow big enough, it they squeeze out the healthy cells and then your kidneys don't work anymore. And um, so kidneys are pretty important. But the good news is that um, 
that you can get a transplant. You know, that's 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 something that that's been happening for many years. I mean, my mom wasn't lucky enough to get one when she had, you know, when she had polycystic disease, unfortunately. But now it's it's pretty common, and as far as transplant technology is concerned, um, uh, it's like the most common transplant, and it's also the one with the best results. Usually, the results tend to be pretty good, so it's great that 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 that's an option besides just dialysis, of course. And um, yeah, so um, I mean, a lot of people have um, medical issues and go through, you know, uh, you know, have to have to deal with with this kind of stuff, and. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that, um, you know, I've, I've been very, very fortunate to be able to live a normal life thanks to, you know, the, the medication that's available and the transplant that I, that I had for my wife. And, um, yeah, and I'm just glad. Obviously, I want to support um, any kind of research or uh, any, any uh, positive developments that can help people with, with this disease or any other uh, genetic d- disease, I think, uh, would be great obviously. Well, Jeff, thank you for sharing uh, that with us. And thank you for talking with us about uh, the drop and everything else. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jeff Lorber and I remind you that his new album The Drop is available now. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out our Jazz Is Vinyl Club. Join the club and we will send you four premium limited edition color vinyl albums mailed directly to you. Just go to jazzis.com and click on Join Vinyl Club for more. And as music from The Drop by Jeff Lorber Fusion plays us out, I encourage you to keep an eye out for more Jazz Is podcasts, our print magazine and other great content available to you on our regularly updated website, jazzis.com. And if you like what you see, you can always subscribe for more. Till the next time, this is Matt McCutchie signing off. See you soon. Music